we will light the candle of hope. God created a perfect world and had a face-to-face -face relationship with the first humans, Adam and Eve. But when they chose to listen to Satan and disobey God, the curse of sin put them in a seemingly hopeless situation. Then God promised that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. This was the first promise of Christmas, and it meant there was hope. As the first human son of God, Adam brought the curse of death on all humanity because of his sin. But as the heavenly son of God, Jesus brought the gift of life to all of humanity because of his sacrifice. That is our hope. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 says, For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Our celebration of Advent begins today by lighting one purple candle, the candle of hope. Please uh, join us in this congregational prayer. Dear Father, thank you for the hope we have in Jesus Christ, your Son. Thank you that he came to defeat the curse of sin and to give us life that lasts forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Trinity Church. It is good to be with y'all this morning. My wife and I would like to start by just saying thank you to a lot of you guys that have been praying for us. Um, this is my first time being with you as preaching to you as a full-time staff member, so that's awesome for us. We're, we're excited about what the Lord is going to do here, and we're excited about joining with you in building his kingdom, because there's a lot of work to be done, right? Um, but we want to say thank you, because well, many of you have been praying about our housing situation over the last like month or month and a half, and uh, we are officially under contract. So... Um, So yes, that is an answer to prayer that is in this housing market that is a miracle. Um, so um, we thank you so much for your prayers. And many of you that have helped us and loved us along the way, it is a beautiful thing to watch a church love each other. It's a beautiful thing. And so thank you for how you love each other. Um, I know that many of you are here and probably still full from Thanksgiving, got a lot of leftovers in, uh, in the fridge. You've, I hear that turkey makes you sleepy, so if you fall asleep today, it's okay. Well, let's try to stay awake. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so I hope that you had a wonderful time with your family. Um, I pray that it was just filled with joy, and I pray that you guys were able to see people that you hadn't seen in a while and hug some necks and love on people. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing that the Lord has given to us. The holidays are here, though. And they, it has come upon us quick. I remember last year I was able to preach to you guys at the beginning of Advent. And I remember thinking last year, man, I'm glad Christmas is here. 
Like, I remember thinking last year in 2020, like, man, I really need Christmas. And as I was preparing for this, this is the first week of Advent for us here, I thought to myself, you know, I have the same feeling this year that I did last year. Like, we need Christmas, don't we, church? We need Christmas. Our homes need to be filled with light and with laughter, and our hearts need to anticipate something special. And our minds need to be consumed with all the promises that are fulfilled to us at Christmas time. And church, Christmas reminds us that our Savior, Jesus Christ, has come. And there should be joy that fills our hearts when we think about this. And sometimes this joy we can't even explain. But we just know that we are joy-filled and everything is all right in the world because Christ has come. And Christmas is here, and I pray that this Christmas season, your hearts are filled with joy. This year, uh, the Advent title, the series title, is The Birth of the Son. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a short break from our Acts study, and we're going to take a look at men from the Old Testament. We're going to compare their births, their lives, and maybe even their deaths with the Christ who was to come. We're going to take a look at five historical men in the Old Testament and see how they point us to the only begotten son. So this morning on week one, we're going to go all the way back to the very beginning. Today, we're going to look at Adam in Genesis, and we're going to see how Adam directs us to Christ. Now, in this message, I'm taking a risk because I know a lot of messages and sermons have three or four or five points. Um, I only have one. I only have one point this morning, so I hope we can all stay together. The point is this. I want to tell, you, tell it to you up front. Jesus Christ is the victorious king that came to fix what Adam broke in the garden. Jesus Christ is the victorious king that came to fix what Adam broke in the garden. Let's pray. Father, we invite you into this place. Right now, Lord, we invite you to come here and invade our hearts even. God, we pray that you make them soft so that you can mold them and shape them the way that you would have them be. Father, we are nothing apart from you. So, Father, this morning as we look into your word, God, I pray that this makes sense. I pray that you calm my heart. May I speak accurately with what your word has to say. May we receive this as though we are receiving it directly from you, Father. May your word speak. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So who here loves just a really good story? I mean, I think, I think really good stories are great. I love hearing them. I love getting lost and the details and being captivated by the scene and all the characters and experiencing all the emotional highs and lows. Being able to envision what's happening or what's going to happen next. And my English professor in college, he used to say this, that a good story, a well-told story, you can smell. Stories have a way of sweeping us away, don't they? And God has hardwired us for stories, listening to them and telling them. It's how God has wired us. 
And I hear that a good story has five main parts. There's characters, there's a setting, there's a plot, there's a conflict, and there's a resolution. There are 1,189 chapters in the entire Bible. And all five of these components of a good story are answered in the first three chapters of the Bible. Let me show you. So characters. In the first verse of the Bible, we find out who the main character is. It's God himself. It says, in the beginning, God. So we know God is a character. But there are supporting cast members. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man. So all of mankind is the supporting cast. Every person who has ever lived on this earth is contained inside of this story. This includes every single one of us. So we know who the characters are. It's God and mankind. Then there's the setting. This too is answered in the first verse of the Bible. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the setting of the Bible is the here and the there. There's the plot. Again, in Genesis 1.1, it answers this question. In the beginning, God. The first verse of the Bible tells us what the rest of the book is all about. It's all about God. The plot of the Bible is the story of God and all that he is and who he is. His power to create, his authority to govern, his holiness that makes him completely different than us. Yet he is compassionate to those who are broken. The plot of the Bible is the grandeur and glory of God. And then from the very first verse in the Bible to the very last verse of the Bible, the Bible drips with the splendor of God. Then we get into the conflict. In church, there is conflict all over the Bible, right? Conflict is everywhere. But up front in chapter 3, we're told of the main conflict, or what is the overarching conflict found in Scripture. And the main conflict found in Scripture is this. Man's rebellion against his creator. It's the main conflict. Man's rebellion against his creator. In chapter 3, Adam disobeyed God. The resolution. So what's the solution to this problem, this rebellion? God himself is the solution. As early as Genesis 3, the Bible tells us that God would someday have victory over evil. And in this amazing story of the Bible, God is the resolution to conflict every single time. Every time there's conflict, God is the solution. So yes, right off the bat, the Bible tells us the whole gist of the whole story, right? But there are so many pieces to it, right? 1,189 chapters, and we just got through three. So how do we put it all together? Putting it all together and figuring out how this whole book weaves its story into one unified story can be difficult and hard at times. How does the Bible connect Adam to Christ? How do all these pieces fit together? I've already told you guys this morning that I love Christmas and I look forward to it. I love Christmas. But if I'm being honest, I'm not always a fan of Santa Claus. Um, For those of you that have kids or have had kids, 
uh, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about because Santa likes to play, play mean tricks on us as parents sometimes. He'll bring our kids some toys and then on the side of the box it says, some assembly required. And uh, a gift for a child becomes a spiritual battleground for us as parents. Um, putting together these toys is sometimes next to impossible. Last year, our son received an awesome gift. This thing was great. Sawyer loves Hot Wheels, and he loves dinosaurs. Um, so this toy combined both of those loves into one toy. And I think I've got a, actually got a picture of it. All right. So here's this thing. It is, it is called, let me see if I can get this right, Hot Wheels Ultimate Dinosaur Garage. It's three feet tall of just endless fun and awesomeness. Um, this thing was great. But when I got it out of the box, there were over 3,000 pieces in a 76-page instruction book. And I was just overwhelmed with what in the world am I going to do? And so like any good man putting together anything that has an instruction book, I look at the pictures, and I look at the pieces, and I look at the pictures, and then I look at the pieces, and then I take a sip of my coffee, look at the picture, look back at the pieces, and I actually remember thinking to myself, Nick, you got this. You got this. You can, you can figure this out. So I, I put the instruction book to the side and launched into putting the, together the pieces that just made sense to me. And after a while, I had a bunch of random pieces all put together to the side, but I had nothing in front of me that resembled this ultimate dinosaur garage. Sometimes I think we do the same thing in our own Bible studies, don't we? We know this story, and we know that story, and we know this other story over here, but being able to put it all together, being able to put all of those pieces together in one unified piece can sometimes be difficult. So after getting as far as I could on my own, I swallowed my pride and decided to pick back up that instruction book. When I looked at step number one, I remember disagreeing with what step number one was. I remember looking at step number one going, there's no way that like that is what I have to do first. Like I haven't even touched those pieces. But I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do what it tells me to do. So they got me to put together these pieces that I hadn't even touched yet. And in big, bold letters on the top of page number one, on step number one, were the words, crucial step. <laughs> crucial step. This instruction book was telling me that if I had done this step correctly, if I had gotten this done, the rest of the installation would go much, much smoother. And they were right. They were right. As long as I had done step number one, it would have gone a whole lot better. So step number one provided a, a framework for me to put all the other pieces together. And I think we're often guilty of this same thing when it comes to our Bible reading. And we gloss over some things that are found in the very beginning. We think we already know it, so we don't go back to it, and we move on. But the story of Adam is a crucial step in the larger narrative of the Bible. But why, though? Why is Adam so important? Well, let me show you. If you've got your Bible, uh, we're going to start in John chapter 3. John chapter 3.
And I know that this may be a strange place to start, since Adam is not mentioned in this chapter, but I think it will help us when looking at it. Found in verse 16 of John chapter 3 is a verse that you all probably know very, very well. I would bet that many of you could recite it from memory. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We all know this verse, right? We'd all probably do a great job of explaining this verse. So this is an easy one. John 3.16 is an easy one. It's what we teach to kids. But earlier in chapter 3, Jesus says something that is not so easy. In fact, it was difficult enough to even stump the ruler of the Jews, which is what John calls this man in verse 1, and to stump the teacher of Israel, which is what Jesus calls this man in verse number 10. Chapter 3 starts with Jesus having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus wasn't just some guy. He wasn't just any guy. He was the teacher of Israel. As a matter of fact, in chapter 7, so if you jump to chapter 7, Nicodemus shows up again and settles a dispute about the law. This was a prominent man, a man that knew the scriptures. He knew the law. People looked to him to get the answers. So if there was anyone that should have known what Jesus was talking about on any subject, it should have been Nicodemus. So what could it have been that Jesus said that would stump this guy? Well, let's read it. This is John 3, verses 2 and 3. So this man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher that comes from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now you look at this right here, look at how Nicodemus started the conversation with Jesus. Did Nicodemus actually ask Jesus a question? No, he didn't ask Jesus a question. Jesus jumped straight from hearing Nicodemus' greeting into telling him that he must be born again. And Nicodemus didn't really understand what he meant. Because in verse 4 he says, How can a man be born when he is old, Jesus? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, a simple reading of this text, a simple reading of this story, Nicodemus is basically saying, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? I don't, I don't understand you. Like, this, this doesn't make sense to me. Jesus went on to describe how this new birth that he was talking about was not physical, like Nicodemus had said it was, or thought that it was, but it was spiritual. So in verses 5 to 8, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, to you, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. What was Jesus getting at when he was talking to Nicodemus? Jesus was reminding this man, this Pharisee, this holy man, this God-seeker, this educated man, that he too had come from Adam. Nicodemus was of the flesh. And Jesus wasted no time. Jesus told him, Nicodemus, you're spiritually dead. You may know the law and you may know the holy scriptures, but you are of the flesh just like your father Adam 
Nicodemus needed to be born again, born of the Spirit, because his first birth was of the flesh, like Adam. So we're going to jump from chapter 3, John chapter 3, and we're going to jump all the way to 1 Corinthians 15. You know, we're going to have this on the screen, and we're going to have a lot of Scripture this morning. So if you don't want to go back and forth with me this morning, I will get you, reach out to me, and I'll get you all the Scriptures that we went through this morning. But they should be right up here on the screen for you. So we're going to jump from John chapter 3 with the story of Nicodemus. We're going to go to Paul's letter, the church in, at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 45 through 49, Paul says this. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. And we could guess that's Adam, right? As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. Nicodemus and us before our conversion and as is the man of heaven, Christ, so also are those who are of heaven, those who have been born again. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ. Okay, so there is a lot to that passage, a lot to what we just read. Let me, let me pull out this and just give you the gist of what's going on. Paul is describing two Adams. He's describing two Adams. The first Adam we read about was the one in Genesis, all the way at the beginning of the Bible. This was God's creation. The first Adam was flesh. The first Adam is from the earth. He calls him the man of dust. Remember what God created Adam from, the man of dust? The second Adam is Christ. This was God in the flesh. And the second Adam, he calls him a life-giving spirit. The second Adam is from heaven. What Paul is saying here is that when we are born, we all bear the image of the man of dust. We bear the image of the fleshly fallen man. We're all direct descendants of the first Adam. And guys, this is the whole reason that Nicodemus needed to be born again. This is the whole reason that you and I too need to be born again. And I think this is really important for us to get right. And I want to show you something all the way back in Genesis. So we went, we're, we're jumping all over the place. Back in Genesis, when God decided to make man, he made man in the image and likeness of himself. God's image was one of perfection and holiness. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God made Adam in his image and in his likeness in chapter 1. But in chapter 3, just two chapters later, where we find the conflict, this image was marred by Adam's sin. When Adam fell in the garden, all of humanity fell with him. Adam's sin tarnished the image and likeness of God that was upon him. The Bible tells us that we receive Adam's fallen and broken image. Let me show you. This is, this is something that is often jumped over. In Genesis 5, 1 through 3, 
It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So Adam and Eve made in the image of God. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. Adam's descendants bore his image. They took on Adam's likeness. Adam's image is far from perfect, right? It was the image and likeness of sinful, fallen man. And Trinity, this is a problem for us. This is a massive problem for all of humanity. Church, every person who has ever come into this world, who has ever come to this world after Adam, bears the image and likeness of fallen man. Except one. Jesus Christ. Why does Jesus not bear the image of fallen man? After all, he was fully man, right? Well, we've sang about it a little bit this morning. He was born of a virgin. Jesus was born of a virgin. And the virgin birth is something that we don't celebrate and talk about a whole lot. Matter of fact, two years ago um, at Union Seminary in New York, there were waves and there was some controversy up there because a seminary that was founded in 1836 to proclaim the infallible word of Jesus Christ, the infallible word of God, now has a seminary professor, excuse me, president, that is claiming that the virgin birth is a bizarre claim in the Bible. Trinity, if we're going to have a hard time believing the virgin birth, we're going to have a really, really hard time believing that Jesus died on the cross and was buried and stayed there for three days dead and then came back to life and ate breakfast with his followers. We don't have the right and the option to pick and choose what it is that we believe because all of this fits together. Jesus was not from Joseph's seed. He was not from Adam's seed. He was from the Holy Spirit. Jesus Jesus was born of a virgin. Luke 1, 34 through 35, Mary talks here. She's talking to the angel. And Mary says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus being born of a virgin is no small thing. Guys, this is huge. Jesus bypassed the fallen nature of Adam by being born of a virgin. If Jesus, if Jesus was born through Adam's line, he too would have a fallen nature. And we celebrate the virgin birth just as we do his resurrection. Because without it, we would still be dead in our sins and trespasses. The first Adam had no earthly father, but came from dust. The second Adam had no earthly father, but he came from heaven. Just a few minutes ago, we sang Hark the Herald. I love that song because it's rich. It's rich in what the Bible has to say about Jesus. It says, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. 
Church, we need a second birth because our first one was from, from corrupt earthly seed. It was from Adam. And remember that 1 Corinthians 15 passage, verse 49. We, we read this, but I want you to see this again. It says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Some of the earliest manuscripts, this is a small change, but I think it's important. Some of the earliest manuscripts of this verse actually say it this way. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, let us also bear the image of the man of heaven. Church, let us bear the image of Christ, the man of heaven. Let us cast off the image of fallen Adam that was once within us. Trinity, listen, Christ came to fix what Adam broke in the garden that day. In Christ, we can be redeemed from the curse of Adam. And praise God that we no longer have to bear the image of the man of dust, but we can bear the image of the man of heaven. We can be born again because of Jesus. Understanding the relationship of Adam to Christ it helps us put a lot more of this into picture. It helps us understand what what is happening in the scripture. It helps us understand what what Paul is telling the Christian and how to live the Christian life. Listen to this from Ephesians 4. This is Paul talking. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. It says, put off the old self. Well, the old man is really what it says. Put off the old man which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Or when Paul says this in Colossians 3, he says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self or the old man. This is a reference to Adam. You have put off the old man with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul here is saying image and likeness. Off with the old man, on with the new man, out with the first Adam, in with the last Adam. Church, In Christ, the image of God can be restored. As I was was preparing for this this week, this point just absolutely just jumped out. And this is exciting. This should be exciting to you. As you grow, I want you to hear this, as you grow in Christ... As you go through the process of sanctification, as hard as it is, as you go through that process of God sanctifying you, the Lord is restoring in you. He's restoring inside of you the beautiful image of God. That's exciting. As you go through the process of living the Christian life, of sanctification, God is restoring inside of who you are the image of God. So church, don't grow tired and don't grow weary of the pursuit of Christ and godliness. 
Be encouraged, because if you're a saved man or woman here today, listen to this verse. This is again is, is Paul in Romans. In Romans 8.29, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is at work in you. Dear believer, if you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God is at work in you to restore the image of God. Do you find yourself embracing this transformation or do you find yourself resisting it? Whose image are you bearing? Adam's or Christ's? Many of our verses this morning have come from the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, the, the letter to, the, to, to Rome is just absolutely a masterpiece. It is a literary masterpiece. And um, it's one of the greatest works of all times. And Martin Luther said of the book of Romans, he says, This epistle really is the chief part of the New Testament in the very purest gospel. And is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word and by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. In the book of Romans, Paul is making an argument. Paul makes a big argument in the book of of Romans. And the first part, this is very simplistic, by the way, what I'm about to say. But the first part of the book of Romans, Paul is making an argument. And the argument is that all the world is condemned. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. Paul is trying to show that the entire world is condemned in sin. In the latter half of Romans, Paul tells us how to live the Christian life. And this is where we find verses like Romans 12 too. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So how does Paul get from for all have sinned and fallen short to the glory of the glory of God, to do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. How does he make that jump? How does he transition from this to this? Well, he does that in Romans 5. Romans 5 is the bridge chapter. Romans 5 bridges the gap between our hopelessness of sin to our perfect hope in Jesus Christ. Romans 5 is this transition chapter that Paul uses. And in chapter 5, Paul recaps his entire message of Romans up to that point by saying this. He says, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, so that therefore, well, you always got to ask why is the therefore, therefore. So it's therefore, Paul has said all of these things up to this point. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Who was this one man that brought sin into the entire world? Adam. In Romans 5, Paul uses the comparison between Adam and Christ to drive home this huge point. And the huge point is this. We have no hope 
apart from Christ. Now, we're going to look at a few of these comparisons that, that Paul makes here in, in chapter 5. So let's look at, at this. In Adam, you received judgment. In Christ, you received the free gift of righteousness. And we can see that in this verse. Romans 5.15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The next comparison. In Adam you received sin. And in Christ you received grace. We can see that in this verse, Romans 5.17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The next comparison. In Adam you received condemnation, but in Christ you received justification. And we see that here, Romans 5.18, which I love this. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Let's look at the next comparison. In Adam, you die. In Christ, we live eternally. And we can see that in these verses right here. It says... Now the law came, to in, came in to increase the trespass. But where, the, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's look at this. In Adam, judgment, sin, condemnation, Death, Christ, righteousness, grace, justification, eternal life. Church, when we see this comparison side by side, and when we think about what Christ has done for us, this should cause us just to surrender our hearts and lives to him. What Adam failed in, Christ was victorious. And John Calvin, he summarizes this chapter beautifully. He says, for certainly Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to ruin. Just think about that. For certainly Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to ruin. Now I love what what Paul says in Romans 6.1. Romans 6.1 is the first verse, so Paul gives this comparison between Adam and Christ in chapter 5, and then in verse 6, he is his first statement after that little segment. He says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Church, by no means. Trinity, Adam has nothing for you. Cast off the old man and flee to Christ. Many years ago, I was introduced to a preacher um, named Paul Washer. And the Lord has used him mightily in my life. And 
I want to close this morning by showing you a clip of one of his sermons. And um, we've talked a lot today about being born again, being a new creation, being in the image of God or the image of Adam, being alive or dead in Adam. I want to show you a short snippet of one of Paul Washer's sermons. And here I want want to kind of set the stage. He's talking to young people uh, and... um, He gives an illustration about a pig. So I want you to listen very closely to it. Can someone look at your life, young person? Not while you're here at church, no. While you're there in the streets and no one sees you. Can they look at your life and say, that person belongs to God. That person is different. That person is not like the world. That person is changing. Young person, do you desire to meet with God in the morning? Do you desire to meet with Him in the evening? Do you desire His Word? Do you want to be changed by it? Young person, when you fall into sin, does it break your heart and afflict you? Or do you love it? Do you relish it? Let me share with you this to close. It's an illustration from Charles Spurgeon. It's very powerful. I want you to imagine that I have right here absolutely the best food you could possibly could possibly prepare. Just a gorgeous plate of the most wonderful food imaginable. And then over here I have a bucket of garbage slop. Now, I know many of you are from California and are not from the farm. But let's say that there was a pig in the back of the church. And I told someone, let the pig go. Where's the pig going to go? Is it going to go to this wonderful plate of food? Absolutely not. Where's it going to go? It's going to go to the garbage. Why is it going to go to the garbage? Because it's a pig. Pigs love garbage. It's going to go to the garbage. It's going to stick its head down in that garbage. It's going to be unashamed and it is going to eat and eat and eat and it is going to love what it's eating. Now, let's say that I have the power with a snap of my fingers to in one second change that pig into a man. What's going to happen? He's going to pull his head out of that bucket. He's going to throw up what he was eating. Why? Because a man cannot eat what a pig eats. It's going to make him sick to himself. He's going to turn around. He's going to see you and he's going to be ashamed. Now, don't be offended. But if you're a Christian, I just described your conversion. All of our conversions. We were born and by nature, we were sinners. We did not want the good food of God. We would rather have the sin and the disgrace and the debauchery of this world. We ran to it. We fed on it. We ate it. We loved it. We desired it. But when a person is converted, what does God do? He changes them into a new creation, a new heart recreated in the image of God and true righteousness and true holiness. And with that new heart, they have new desires and they can no longer stomach the sin of this world. 
and they're ashamed that they ever participated in it. And they begin to walk no longer as a sinner, but begin to learn to walk as a saint. Now, can a Christian be deceived and put his head back in the bucket? Yes, he can. But the moment he takes a bite, he knows it's wrong. The moment he takes a bite, it makes him sick. And it will not take long for him to repent of his foolishness and to be ashamed for returning to what he had left. Is this you? Has God changed your heart? Does he continue changing your heart? Do you long to be free from the filth of this world? Do you long to be like Christ? If you can say yes, that is a great evidence that you have been born again. Christmas is filled with many gifts, but there is no gift greater than receiving new life. In Jesus Christ. I want you to hear Romans 5.17 one more time. It says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Church, receive the gift of Jesus today. Let's, let's not find ourselves eating from the pig trough of this world when Jesus is offering us the finest delicacies that heaven has to offer. Christ is inviting you, come and dine. And if you're here this morning and you're unsure of your salvation and all of this just doesn't make a whole lot of sense, I'm pleading with you. To be reconciled to God. Receive the new birth in Christ and cast off the old man. There are many of us here that will stay as long as it's needed to talk with you. Trinity, this is the greatest, the truest, most personal, most captivating story that has ever, ever been told. And you and I have the privilege and also the command to share it with everyone that we know. Church, may your hope grow this Christmas season knowing that Christ has fixed what Adam broke in the garden. Trinity, may your hearts be full because our victorious Savior and King has come. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we read your word and we see what you have done all throughout history of mankind, you have been at work. Father, you have been at work redeeming a people for yourself. What a beautiful story it is to see how the conflict found in Scripture is resolved by the one who created it all. God, we praise you today.
for what you have done for us. We thank you that we have salvation in your Son. And God, we thank you that you are creating in us the image and likeness of your Son. Father, continue to conform us. Make us a church that is after that image, Father. May people from from the community see us and know that we have been born again through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.